So again, if there's anything in the whole of religion that we should most certainly know, we ought most closely to grasp by what reason, with what law, under what condition, with what ease or with what difficulty, forgiveness of sins may be obtained. We live in a culture where, where there's almost this cultural expectation that, that God must forgive. In fact, many would say, well, that, that's his job. That's his job to forgive me. But is it? Is it God's job to forgive? If there's anything that we should most certainly know, we ought to know how forgiveness of sins may be obtained. Well, whether you realize it or not this morning, and and hopefully most of you do, but your greatest need this morning, my greatest need this morning, the thing that we need more than anything else in the world is divine forgiveness. There's no exception. No one in this room is accepted from that reality. Though we were all created by God for God in order to know Him and, and to be in fellowship with Him, we all, every one of us, have turned aside. We've, we've all forsaken Him. We've all sinned against Him. And as a result of, of our sin, corporately and individually, we all are now or were at one point alienated and separated from God because of sin. And, and the only hope for anyone, and I mean anyone from, from the least to the greatest, from, from the richest to the poorest, the only hope for anyone to be reconciled to God hangs on the question of whether or not there's forgiveness with God. Does God forgive? And if He does, how do I obtain it? Can I be forgiven? That's a question that that we're going to be considering this morning. And and at the outset, let, let me give you the good news. God is a God who forgives. That, that's the good news for you this morning. God forgives. We, we see forgiveness throughout all the Old Testament. I mean, think about, we think about clearly when, when God is dealing with the Israelites through Moses and, and Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. We, we see in, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, one of the most famous self-proclamations from the mouth of God to his servant Moses. And here's what he says. He says, The Lord... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and listen to this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that's Exodus 34. That's on the second giving of the law in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai. But then we also see it in the book of Leviticus. If if you're like me, your Bible reading plan, you might be in in Leviticus right about now in, in February, into February. That's hard to read, isn't it? Most reading plans, you, you, you see all the checks and they stop in Leviticus and never get picked back up again. But we see, even in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapters 1 through 7, where, where there's some pretty strange, specific laws regarding offerings, like burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings. And it's real easy to get lost in all those details and all the, the strangeness of it. But the main point of, of all of these, these, these sacrifices is the fact that following these laws leads to God's forgiveness. The main point, the, these laws and regulations, they're, they're prescribed by God, and, and we shouldn't be deterred from, from the, the, their numerous, how many there are, and, and their strange nature, because the reason behind all of these regulations is that God was providing a way for His people's sin to be dealt with. 
So when you're reading Leviticus and you're lost, just thank God that he had made a way for forgiveness of sins. Paul House, an Old Testament theologian, says God's willingness to forgive is one of the principles at the core of the sacrificial system. But Mount Sinai and Leviticus are not the only places in the Old Testament that we see it. We, we could go book after book. We, we see it in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. You, you want to you read a good prayer, write down 1 Kings 8 and read Solomon's prayer at the, at the dedication of the temple or, or Daniel's prayer in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, or Nehemiah, or all over the Psalms. The Psalms are, are littered with, with God's nature as that of forgiving. Psalm 103, write that down. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities. Maybe you've heard that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. That's Psalm 103. And then we see it in the prophets, Isaiah 33, 24, and Jeremiah 33, 8. All over the Old Testament, we see it attested to again and again that God does forgive. And that his people are dependent upon that forgiveness. And that's good news. Well... If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. And, and it's page 813, I believe that's right, uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Pew Bible, that's not your page number. Okay, but, but the, the Gospel of Mark, we're going to continue our study there. And as you're turning there, let, let me kind of set the stage of where we are in Mark's gospel, because we're entering a section here in the beginning of chapter 2 that's going to run through verse 6 of chapter 3, and there's going to be five different uh, events or, or scenes where there's, there's controversy or there's conflict, and it's going to be specifically between Jesus and the religious leaders. So we're entering a, this week, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll see all five of these instances of conflict. And in this section, the passage we're looking at specifically today, the source of tension is related to the fact that we just saw that God forgives sin. So God's forgiveness of sin is what what causes the tension or the conflict between Jesus and the scribes. We'll see in our passage that that the scribes, they they understand that, that God does forgive sin. And so their issue isn't whether or not God forgives sins. In fact, they they would have been great students of the Old Testament, so they'd have known all the passages that we just walked through. They they would have known without a shadow of doubt that God is a God who forgives sins. So their issue wasn't in the fact that God forgives sins, but their issue, as we'll see, is that a man was claiming to issue forgiveness that only comes from God. Their issue was that this man named Jesus was claiming an authority that belonged to God alone. They sensed in in Jesus' declaration, as we'll see in this passage, his declaration of forgiveness, they sensed an affront to the majesty and the authority of God. And so in our passage that we'll read in just a moment, we'll see that Jesus not only claims to have authority, have the authority to forgive sins, but he also gives evidence that he has the authority to forgive sins. We should be be there in your Bibles by now. So Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 12 so you can follow along as I read. Mark, Mark 2, chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum some, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, in our passage, I think it breaks down really neatly into, into three sections. And so we're going to walk through these, these three sections. There's the outline in verses 1 through 5. We, we see the claim to authority, Jesus' claim to, to have the authority to forgive sins. And then secondly, in verses 6 through 8, we see the question that arises about this authority that Jesus claims. And then thirdly, verses 9 through 12, we see the evidence given, that, that Jesus per, produces evidence that he does in fact have the authority. So, so look there firstly, let's look at, at verses 1 through 5, the claim to authority. So we, we find Jesus, verse 1, returning to Capernaum. And so if you remember last time, a couple weeks ago, the last time he was in Capernaum, he had healed his mother, or Peter's mother-in-law, and then people had come, and, and the, the line was out the door, so he goes out into a desolate place, comes back and says, we're leaving. He goes all around Galilee preaching and, and healing, okay? And that was all around Galilee. So he left Capernaum, but now he's come back to Capernaum. And so notice verse 1, how, how Mark records his entrance back into Capernaum. He doesn't announce the disciples don't lead the way and, and proceed and say, here comes Jesus, but it says he returned. And it was reported that he was at home. And so, so someone sees Jesus coming, and, and, and social media blows up. He's back. He's back. And so people start coming. Jesus comes back into the Capernaum, and the cow, crowds start to gather again. And so notice what Mark records him doing. Now that he's back in Capernaum. He, he's not back healing. He's not back casting demons. Rather, Mark says he was preaching the word to them. That we saw last week, that was his priority, preaching the word Mark doesn't record him healing anything. We, we assume that lots of people gathering were there to be healed. That, that's why they would, they would gather so quickly. But here, Mark records Jesus not healing, but preaching the word to them. But, but we're introduced with, with one man specifically who's brought by four friends. So we have at least five men who come. And, and we know these five have come not to hear the word. They have come specifically for healing, Make no mistake, they had made their trek to the house in Capernaum in order for this paralytic to be healed. He was a paralytic. He was crippled. He was unable to move. Some translations, maybe yours says he has palsy. He suffered from palsy. This man, the paralytic, was carried for the purpose of being healed. Okay, you, you get that at the outside. That's why they've brought him. They don't bring him on a bed all the way just so they can listen to Jesus. They're coming so that by getting him to Jesus, he can be healed. But look at how verse 4 continues. I mean, imagine the scene. I love the, the imagery. Here we are, verse, verse 4. They get there, the, the crowds have gathered. When they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so we've already seen that Jesus is committed to preaching. He's preaching the word to them. How, how, what I would give to have been in that sermon, to hear Jesus preaching the word. But here, in the midst of his preaching, here comes a man on a mat being lowered. Right beside Jesus, his preaching is interrupted. And he's being, he's being lowered for the purpose of being healed. Right? That, that's why their friends say, we've got to get him to Jesus. So let's, let's go up on the roof, let's dig a hole in the roof, and let's lower him down to Jesus. These men, their, their persistence is, is to be commended. It, it, they, they would not be turned away. But that leads us to verse 5, where things begin to get interesting. So look there at verse 5. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So let me read it again. Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when I read that, there's two questions that immediately come to, come to my mind. First, when he saw their faith. Who's the there? Whose faith did Jesus see in order to heal this man? So that's my first question. Who's the there? And we have to say it's at least the four men carrying him. Right? That we, we have to say it is at least those four, because these are the men who, who've actually carried him. We don't know how far away he has come, but they, they've dug through the roof. They, they've done all they could to get their friend to Jesus. And, and it's safe to say that all of these actions are motivated by faith. I mean, it's faith in action. They've, they've actually done things because they believe that Jesus could, could help their friend. And so it's at least these four men. I, I think that the paralytic's faith is included in the there. But, but that's the first question. So seeing their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. But the second question, and I'd say the more troubling of the questions, arises from verse 5. And my question is simply this. Why in the world does Jesus say that his sins are forgiven? I mean, if you're following this story, the response that, that would, have, would have made sense, would have would seemed logical, that we might have expected from Jesus is, upon seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, your faith has made you well. Get up and walk. Right? That makes sense. He's come to be healed. He sees their faith. Get up and walk. That, that makes sense. But instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Imagine, imagine the, the disappointment, maybe, of the man on the mat. Really? Sins forgiven? That's it? That's not why I came? Or his friends? What are his friends thinking? The, the pronouncement, one, one commentator says, the pronouncement was startling because it seemed inappropriate. And even irrelevant to the immediate situation. I've come to be healed. I want to walk, and you're telling me my sins are forgiven. No one's even said anything about sin. Why bring that up, Jesus? Don't you know why this man has come? Don't you know why these, these four men have, have brought their friend to you? It's obvious, Jesus, that this man needs to be healed. Well, we'll see that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows exactly what this man needs. But, but before we move on, let, let me stop and make one, I would say, very important application. Because in, in the case with this paralytic in, in Jesus' proclamation, I think we see a, a relationship between disease and sin. Okay? I think there's a connection between sin and this man's disease. Now listen carefully. This connection probably isn't what you're thinking. Okay, so let me tell you what I don't mean when I say that there's a connection between disease and sin. I don't mean I think that Mark or Jesus is trying to get us to connect this man's disease with this man's sin. 
Okay, so I'm not saying that this man's disease is a result of his sin. That, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, think about the blind man in John's gospel. That's what the disciples assume. Who was, who was born, why was this guy born blind, Jesus? Was it his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. So I'm not saying that this man has this disease because of his sin. But what I am saying is that there is a connection between sin and disease, and it's simply this. God did not create our bodies to be paralyzed. God did not create our bodies to be plagued with leprosy. God did not create our bodies to be sick. God did not create our bodies in order for our bodies to suffer. In fact, suffering, human suffering, screams that our world is fallen. That's what disease screams, that it's not right. Something's wrong with the world. And so all physical suffering, broadly, generally, can, can be traced back to sin. Broadly, all disease, all physical suffering is a result of sin. And so the good news, the good news for us is, the good news for the paralytic, is that Jesus came to address the sin issue. We'll say more about that in a second, but Jesus came to address the sin issue, and in doing so, he has also addressed the disease issue. Therefore, when Jesus, we'll see later on, when he claims that this man's sins are forgiven, he's dealing with a much more significant issue than, than the leprosy. Jesus is addressing a need that this man probably doesn't even realize he has. But Jesus came to address the sin issue and in so doing has also addressed the disease issue. Jesus came to right every wrong. Jesus has come to make the sad things come untrue is one of our, what one of our kids' Bible says. Don't you love that? Every sad thing that you experience in this world, Jesus came to make it untrue, and one day it will be untrue. This man's paralysis, uh, another person's leprosy, another person's blindness, blindness, all of these diseases that, that can ultimately be traced back to sin entering the world, all of these things have been, dress, been addressed by Jesus. And because of the work of Christ on the cross, there is great Christian hope in the midst of, of human suffering. Because of what Christ has done, there's great Christian hope in the midst of great human suffering. Physical suffering, friends, it's only temporary. Disease can only take your tent. In the language of Paul in in 1 Corinthians 15, this is our tent, our earthly body. It's not our permanent home for those who trust in Jesus. Disease, sickness, it can only take our tent. The body living now Because of the work of Christ on the cross, one day, believer, you're going to receive a resurrected body. A body that will no longer be subject to sin or sickness or death. And this is good news for the Christian. I mean, just this week, I was in in multiple hospital rooms. There is suffering. There's diseases that we don't know what to do about. We live in a fallen world, but Jesus came to address it. And there's a day coming when sin and suffering and sickness and death will be no more. That is our hope, Christian. Maybe you need to be encouraged this morning. Are you suffering? It's a momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that awaits us. God, give us faith to believe that as we go through suffering. If you're not there, you're going to be there one day. You're going to have a loved one, a parent, a child suffering, and and you're going to feel helpless. Trust that God has addressed this. So let us hate sin and disease. Let us hate it. Let us pray. Pray for healing. Let us pray against cancer. Let us pray for a cure for cancer. Let us do all these things. But let 
us do so knowing that a day's coming when all human suffering will end. That's great hope for the Christian. But secondly, let's look at verses 6 through 8, the second point, the, the question of authority. So here in verse 6, we're introduced to the scribes or, or the experts of the law, the Pharisees. These are going to be, become main characters in Mark's gospel. And immediately, they take issue with, with what Jesus has just said. So look there in verse 6. Mark records, now some of the scribes were sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they take issue. Well, what's their issue with Jesus? What's their issue? As we saw earlier, in the Old Testament, it's God alone can forgive sins. And so their issue is that this man, who's just shown up back in Capernaum, he's claiming God's prerogative in forgiving sins. How can this man claim to forgive sins? Who does he think he is? And, and the forgiveness here mentioned, this isn't like Jesus saying, okay, you've, you've offended me, I forgive you. This is, this is on a totally different level. The forgiveness here mentioned is, is a granting of full pardon from divine judgment against sins. And so that's a problem for the scribes. He, he can't say that. And so notice verse 8. One more thing to notice before, or one more thing to notice before moving to verse 8. These scribes, they're, they're questioning in their hearts. Okay, so this, this opposition rising, this, this indignation, it's all internal. Okay, they're, not, they're not saying these things. Maybe, maybe their body language is saying something, but, but in terms of actual speaking, they're not saying anything. They're just, to themselves, who does he think he is? That's important because look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. You see what's happening? Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves says to them verbally, why do you question these things in your heart? Do you see the irony? The irony here? Even as these religious leaders are scoffing at Jesus' claim to divine authority, he's reading their minds. He knows what they're thinking, and he's demonstrating a prerogative of God alone. He says, why are you thinking this in your hearts? So he exposes their questioning hearts. He's not going to let their question go unanswered. And, I think, to their surprise, Jesus agrees with their declaration. I think Jesus would agree, absolutely only God can forgive sin. I think he would agree, which is why I want to stop and I want to make this application here. Simply, only God can forgive sins. The scribes are correct. And I think Jesus agrees with them. So the application, only God can forgive sins. When Jesus is involved in this dilemma, the dilemma isn't about whether or not Jesus is merely a prophet conveying the forgiveness of sins. Okay, like the prophet Nathan with David, where he says, your, your sins have been pardoned. That's not, that's not the issue here. Their issue, notice, notice their issue. That if, if Jesus was just presenting himself as a prophet, they, they wouldn't have an issue necessarily. They wouldn't have this type of issue at least. Their issue is that only God can forgive sins. And they're right, but, but what they don't consider is that maybe God is in their midst. That's not a connection to, that, that they're willing to consider. When Jesus comes along and does these things, and he says these things that only God can do, there's only two possibilities, two possible responses. Refuse to believe him. Deny what he says. Explain away what, what he is clearly saying, which is, which, this is the route the scribes are going to take. But the other option is to accept what he says is true. I, I don't know how it works. I, I, don't, I don't know how, how all this fits together, but this man understands himself, to act as God. He's doing things that only God can do. He's taking prerogatives that only God can take. 
He must be God. That's the only other option. You know, there's a two. I had, I had a conversation yesterday with, with three Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they, they came by the house, and, and so I went down, and I said, okay, let's, let's talk to them. And they, like the scribes, I, I pointed them to passage after passage, and they refused to believe what Jesus clearly claimed and believed about himself. They wouldn't entertain the thought for a second that Jesus was God. And I kept asking them, I pointed them to this passage. I said, what issue did the scribes and the Pharisees have with Jesus? Why was he crucified? What's their problem, Mark 2? Why is it a problem that he issues forgiveness of sins from their own mouths? Only God can do that. And Jesus does that which only God can do. Seems clear, doesn't it? And I said in chapter 3, flip over, look at verse 6. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him because he's saying things that only God can say. Jesus is killed because he, though a man, claims to be God. That's why he was crucified by the Pharisees. And so all throughout the Gospels, Jesus' opponents hated him because he conveyed in no uncertain terms that he was God. He wasn't the created son. And that's what they kept saying. No, no, he's the son of God. I said, well, you mean something different than I mean. He, he wasn't created. He's not the firstborn of creation in the way that you think. Before Abraham was, in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean, if, it, if anything, but Jesus conveying to be Yahweh, I am, of, of Exodus, the revelation to, to Moses. If Jesus wasn't God, he had plenty of opportunities to clarify the misunderstanding. Plenty of opportunities. But nowhere, nowhere do we see him denying that charge. Nowhere. Only God can forgive sins. And here in our passage, Jesus is claiming to act as God. And, and this claim isn't lost on the experts of the law. And so then we get to the third section, section 3, verses 9 through 12. Jesus continues in verse 9 with, with a question to the disapproving scribes. And so this question is going to set the stage. Jesus, he, he's always a step ahead. He, he knows their thoughts. So he's, he's setting the stage. And here's the question he asks them, verse 9. And I want you to think about this question. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Probably right there. So the, these men, let's, let's envision the scene. The men are standing right here. Jesus is here, and, and here's the paralytic man on the mat. So Jesus says, okay, okay, scribes, what's easier for me to say to this man? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home? So do you see the two options? So what's easier? Now, at first glance, it, it might seem like a, like a trick question. Right? Both of these things are impossible, aren't they? How can anyone say those? Those are both. Neither is easy to say. Healing a paralytic and forgiving someone's sins are, effective, are only effectively accomplished by God. So that neither are easy. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, look again at his question, verse 9. He says, which is easier to say? Think about what's easier to say of these two options. Which would be easier for someone to say? Either your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, now, although both, we understand, both are miraculous, only one of these statements is outwardly visible, is, is outwardly verifiable. So it's harder to tell a paralytic man to rise, pick up his bed, and go home, because after you say that, everyone's watching. Everyone will be able to tell whether your words have power or not. That's hard to say, because if you say it and it doesn't happen, everyone's going to know. If I say your sins are forgiven, well, who they're watching can know, really. 
And so Jesus poses this question to these experts of the law in order to establish it's much harder to say, get up and walk. So that Jesus, knowing when when the scribes and everyone else see in just a minute that paralytic, get up and walk, they'll know that Jesus has authority. And and by establishing his authority to the hard, visible thing, he also has the authority to the invisible thing, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see these two are working together? Jesus is going to do the hard thing in order to show that he also has the authority to to do the easy thing, the invisible thing. So he's giving evidence in this case so that they might know he can do this, forgive sins. And so notice verse 10, after after he asked the question, he doesn't even give him a chance to respond. Maybe there's silence, maybe they were dumbfounded and saying, well, maybe if we say this, he'll do this, maybe we'll say this. We don't know, but Jesus continues, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I said to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I, mean, I can't imagine what, what the friends, what the paralytic himself is thinking at this point. I mean, it's like they show up, they want to be healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, now, at the, at the end, he, he says, your sins are forgiven, they says that you know you're forgiven, get up and walk. Like, Wait a minute, this should be switched around, Jesus, why are you flipping things like that? The authority for Jesus to do both, to do one, points to his authority to the other. That, that's the point here. And so Jesus, after he says that, verse 12, just matter-of-factly, Mark records, and he rose immediately. And he picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so the man, the man who came in through the roof laying on a mat, that same man walked out through the front door on his feet. Do you see that? The man who who was laying on a mat when he came in, he's walking out of the front door on his feet. And and it's all because of of his interaction with Jesus. All to point to the authority of of Jesus that he can forgive sins. And so in healing the paralyzed man, Jesus gives evidence that he's able not only to heal the paralytic, but more importantly, he's able to forgive sins. And so people are amazed and and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, let me close with, with... Two more applications. First, the miracles confirm the message. The miracles confirm, I made this point last week, but it's here in verse 10. Why does Jesus heal the paralytic? He says, but that you may know that the Son has authority to forgive sins. He doesn't say that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to heal the sick, or to cast out demons, or to turn water into wine, or to multiply fish and bread. He says, I'm going to do this miracle so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. Do you see the priority of the message there? He's doing this miracle so that the message might be heard. The fundamental purpose behind Jesus' miraculous ministry was to confirm his message, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is available. That's what Jesus is driving towards. That's, that's his priority. And so his ministry has to be understood in light of that. If anyone claims to understand the ministry of Jesus, but, but it's limited to his actions, yeah, Jesus, he loved the poor, he healed the sick, he, he just did a lot of social good. If that's all you think about Jesus' ministry, you don't understand Jesus' ministry. All of that was to point to who he was and what he had come to proclaim. And his message is far greater than any miracle because this man, his, his life was transformed. He could walk. I mean, that, that's a big deal for this man, but... Without the forgiveness of sins, this man's body will once again cease to move. 
His body would eventually be conquered by death. If, if all Jesus did was heal his physical body and, and not address the deeper issue, this, this man really wouldn't have been helped at all. Jesus knows the need of this man, and this man's paralysis led him to the great physician who could heal not only his body, but also his soul and forgive his sins. And so miracles confirm the message. But then secondly, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and does. This is good news. Jesus has authority to forgive sins and does. Are you here this morning? Are you burdened by your sin? Maybe you've had a hard week. Maybe God's showing you ways that that you fall short. Do you doubt God's loving care towards you because of your sin? Do you wonder, well, how could God love a messed up person like me? Well, brother and sister, for those who are trusting in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's good news. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You see, with the coming of Christ, the forgiveness of sins has taken on a a totally new meaning. So it's no longer these these Levitical laws and sacrifices that, that, that bring about the forgiveness of sins. Rather, Jesus himself, the one speaking these words in our passage, he's the one who would give his life Mark 10, 45, as a ransom for many. He is the sacrificial lamb who would be slain. Jesus, the one speaking about forgiveness of sins, is the one who would die in the place of those he came to save. To die in the place of of those whose sins would be forgiven. Jesus died in order to pay sin's debts. And Jesus paid it all. And he died in order that forgiveness of sins might be freely proclaimed to all people. And so if you're here, not a Christian your life hasn't been transformed by the power and the authority, the lordship of Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ, if that's you here this morning, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. And you don't have forgiveness of sins. That's the reality of, of your situation this morning, but, but I have good news. The good news is that Christ died so that sinners might be saved. That's why Christ died. He died so that sinners might be saved. Christ died so that sinners might be free from sin and death and its consequences. Christ died so that anyone, anyone, anyone who would trust in him would be saved, redeemed, brought back, reconciled to God. Can I tell you, if you're here not trusting Christ, you have no permanent or lasting hope apart from the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ. But Jesus, he has authority to forgive your sins. And he will forgive your sins this day. Why refuse? Why continue in your unbelief? Why follow the path of the scribes? Repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ this morning. I would love to talk to you about this. Find me afterwards or when we're singing in a second. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel that saves sinners like me, like all of us. But if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, and I'm closing. If you're a Christian, can I tell you, again, I'm going to beat the drum. I'm going to kick the dead horse. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, listen, here's a few passages. Listen to these promises from God's Word. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 42. This is Peter at Cornelius' house in in Acts chapter 10. But here's what Peter says. He's, He's preaching to this crowd in the house. He says, Jesus commanded us the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. 
To him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that, and here's what the, all the prophets bear witness to, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him. Are you a Christian believing in him? You've received the forgiveness of sins through his name. Or Ephesians 1, 7, Paul, in him, that is Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If you're in Christ this morning, you have forgiveness of your trespasses in him. Or Colossians, the last one, Colossians 1, verse 13, he, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us take heart this morning. Brother, sister, Christian, be encouraged this morning. We have a Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross that we might be forgiven our sins. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. We don't deserve it. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, has done that for us. Let us rejoice in the marks on our Savior, Savior's hands and the marks on our Savior's feet. Let us, let us join with the living creatures, the elders, and the innumerable multitude of angels crying around the throne, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let us think for a moment how great a blessing it is that Jesus is our great high priest and that we know where to go for absolution. Let's pray.